This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. It's episode 711, and this week we welcome Josh Miller, president of Rainbow Restoration, for a fireside chat. I get a start a fire here somewhere about his journey from the trenches to the boardroom. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget after the show about afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. IAQ Radio Plus Marquee Sponsor is First On Site Property Restoration at firstonsite.com. IAQ Radio Association Sponsors are ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org. AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org. IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org. The Restoration Industry Association, RIA, at RestorationIndustry.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA, at EIA-USA.org. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com, TSI Inc. at TSI.com, Tramex Meters at TramexMeters.com, and Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Brent Kynock, who in last week's trivia photo finished was first to identify mesothelioma as the common thread shared by these celebrities, Steve McQueen, Ed Lauder, Merlin Olson, and Paul Gleason. Here's today's IAQ radio trivia question. Name the book written by the founder of Rainbow International, Don Dwyer Sr. Back to you, Joe. All right, Cliff. Josh Miller started in the industry in 1996 working for his ex-father-in-law as a water technician and carpet cleaner. Since then, he's moved through a series of positions at several companies and in 2017 went back to Rainbow for the second time, where he went from, uh, again, working his way up to the current position as president of Rainbow Restoration. Welcome, Josh. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on here with you and Cliff. Great to have you, buddy. Let's start with... Um, your work in the trenches. What was your entry position? I think we just said you were a water technician and um, carpet cleaner. Tell us a little bit about your uh, your first job and how you got started in the industry. Yeah, so back in uh, April, May of 1996, um, I was uh, dating my ex-wife now at the time, but we were dating and working, uh, doing a lot of work that was in the evenings or at night as we looked out to the future of talking about, hey, what does this look like if we're going to have a committed relationship, get married? Um, didn't want to be working at night. So her dad uh, owned, he still owns a very small cleaning and restoration company. 
uh, up in the Metro Detroit, up in Michigan. And so he offered me a job to start working on the truck as a carpet cleaning technician, and a water mitigation technician. You know, the interesting thing was it was a job. I was 19, 20 years old, uh, didn't really understand the industry. And I'm in my head, I'm like, how many water jobs can there really be in the world? So it's <laughs> since that time over the past 27 years, it's been uh, quite the indoctrination or the uh, education into really what the disaster restoration is and how we help people. Well, how did, what was your first promotion, I guess, after that? Yeah, so as um, he was uh, my father-in-law back, it was uh, in September of 2001, actually during 9-11, uh, he bought a franchise or he bought into a franchise network. And so when he bought into that franchise network, part of uh, that was the was the, the training that franchises offer, whether that's at Rainbow, Puro Clean, um, Paul Davis, and all the different franchises, we all offer training. And he wanted me to come into the office to do project management and estimating. He was going to start to train me to do some other stuff. And I was going to go down uh, to this network's training class. And then 9-11 happened. And so they actually moved their training back a couple of weeks. And it's something I'll never forget because my uh, ex-wife and I and our oldest son at the time was only, what, three years old. So we actually had to make, instead of flying there, we had to drive there. And it was just, uh, for everyone, obviously, a unique time of life. But that was my first promotion. Um, into doing something different. I know we've talked about, you know, we're going to talk about what we think about mentors and stuff. But when that promotion happened, there's a, a gentleman named John Crager that worked with us at the company at the time, just a wonderful gentleman, uh, man. Unfortunately, he's passed away from ALS since that time that I worked with him, but was a wonderful person that really took me under his wing and uh, taught me a ton about about construction and how houses go together because I didn't know anything. So that was my first promotion was to come into the office start writing estimates. And uh, John Crager was someone that I'll always remember that uh, helped to explain how houses go together and really guided me for the next couple of years. Well, we're, you, you talk about training. I want to turn it over to Cliff and uh, let's talk a little more about training. It seems like that's been a really uh, important part of your background. Um, so what sort of training did did you get? Um, you know, I, I guess when you started with your dad, was it all OJT or did you do some IIC or C courses or, or, or anything like that? And yeah, so Cliff, it's funny because that's one of the things, uh, my ex-father-in-law is a good man. You know, he's a wonderful, uh, papa to my two sons, uh, for 26 years that, uh, I was part of that family. He's a very good man, but what I jokingly say that, um, if you want to know how to not train people. When you have a restoration or a cleaning company, that's it was the way that I was trained because uh, Cliff, as you say, it was a lot of on-the-job training. Um, he had attended a number of IICRC training classes himself and then had taken that knowledge and shared it with me and other team members. But I didn't even know what the IICRC was probably for the first two or three years that I was in the industry, which as I look back is really scary because the first uh, S500 water damage standard came out in 1994 here I am, I started in 1996, and for the next three years, I'm running around uh, drying out buildings with training from my father-in-law, who, as I said, is a, is a very good man. He's a good teacher. But then he sent me my first IICRC training class that I ever went to to start my formal education in the industry uh, was at Great Lakes Steamway down in Wayne, Michigan. I can't remember the instructor, but it was a one-day OCT, the odor control class. And then at that point in time, really opened my eyes up because the instructor did a great job of laying out that there's all these other certification classes that are available in the industry. And so that's the first three to four years of my career where it was all hands-on training, talking to my father-in-law and other people. And then I gradually started 1999, went to odor control, 
2001, I got WRT, FSRT, and OCT, or uh, OCT, um, CCT, carpet cleaning. So went through those three. And then from there, uh, 2001 forward, really just started trying to get as much training as I could formally, but a lot of on-the-job training to start with, Cliff. Well, you know, going back to the on-the-job training, and when you're kind of going through it, um, I mean, do you realize that, um, I, I think hands-on training really, in my opinion, is the, the best way to train people, uh, at least uh, people that I've trained. But I don't know that you realize it's deficient, you know? No, you don't. The one thing that to this day that my father-in-law is, um, so what, one of the classes that he, one of the first classes he ever went to was by Jeff Bishop, an upholstery right. cleaning. And I, I mm-hmm. share this because, Cliff, your on-the-job uh, on or hands-on training analogy is a very good one. Uh, my father can clean, dry clean, and uh, clean very delicate fabrics very, very well, my ex-father-in-law. Mm-hmm. It's something that I never got the hang of, no matter how many times he even showed me t- with hands-on training. It's just something that I couldn't pick up the way he did. But the hands-on training did help it to, help me to where I didn't ruin anything, thankfully. Uh, but, yeah, you don't know that it's deficient. Um, you start to pick it up, and I say you, you can show someone – then you can, you know, do it. And then the best way to really to learn something is to teach other people how to do it. Uh, and so that was something that I did have the benefit of after he showed me and I did it for a number of years as new team members would join the company. He would send me out on the truck to train them. Um, and it it does really help to reinforce the concepts into your brain. Uh, as I look back, um, there was a lot of good stuff I learned. And then the formal stuff, I just didn't know that there was a formal process. I just assumed, hey, you clean carpet. It's not that complicated, but I was very wrong. Well, you know, I, I think you have great reviews as a trainer. I've, I've seen, uh, heard a lot of great things about uh, people that have gone to training courses with you. And um, what did you what did what did you take from the OGT, and what did you take from you know the the IICR courses that you've taken, and how did you improve on any of those techniques in, in dealing with your own students? Yeah. Um... The one thing is, is, you know, I'm trying to make it as simple as possible whenever I'm teaching is that, you know, if you can't explain something as if I was explaining it to uh, my youngest son's now 16, but if he, when he was 12, like, hey, how do you explain something so that it's very a basic concept and then you can build on that foundation? If you start out super complicated, people get lost or they get discouraged. Um, so when I think back to uh, being out in the field on the job training clip, I just tried to remember as I'm teaching, I try to remember, Hey, what helped me? I'm not always the uh, smartest person in the room, uh, but I try to remember what was the concept that visually helped me. I'm a very visual learner. And then how can I explain that to other people in a very simple way? And then another thing that I try to do in any of my training is just to be very encouraging um, I think anybody on the earth can learn anything. It's just a matter of, do you have somebody that believes in you and are they patient enough? And so that's when I think about how I teach, it's really a matter of how do you build camaraderie and make sure that everyone feels welcome in the room, that we're all going to get through this together. How do you explain it in a very simple way? And then how, when I'm explaining it, I try to use visual aids, whether it's on the screen or a hands-on demonstration. And then at the end of it, when it, from an instruction standpoint, just ask, hey, does anybody have any questions or anything they'd like to go over again? Spend as much time as we need to. And then the last thing I would say is that you just have to be observant um, as to if some people aren't picking up on it, but maybe they're they are hesitant to ask in front of the group. You know, normally the bigger the group, or if you have, uh, Cliff, you've done a lot of training. Uh, and Joe, Pete's been a big mentor of mine. 
Pete Consigli, but if you see someone that's kind of hesitant to raise their hand because maybe there's some strong personalities in the room, one of the things I try to do is uh, follow up with them on one of the breaks and say, is there anything I can help you with one-on-one so that they don't have to be embarrassed in front of the group, but you help them in a one-on-one setting. But I think really the two things I would say is uh, how can I make it simple and how can I make it a visual thing that people can see where we start and where we end? That's some great stuff. And, you know, I, I think, you know, some of the people uh, certainly that are listening and will listen to future trainers, and I think they'll pick up some, uh, you know, certainly some tips from that because, you know, different students learn differently. But I, I don't know. I've never really found any students that really just learn by reading it, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm supposedly they can, but yeah. I just never, uh, I never encountered them. And, you know, uh, some of the training I've done for uh, RIA, I, I'll never forget. I, I had a, a woman who was, uh, you know, who was mentally challenged, but she was, you know, a very, very good worker. And uh, at that time, the RIA examinations were a written uh, examinations. They were not uh, true and false, you know, fill in the blanks and matching and 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 so on and so forth. And the amazing thing that was that, you know, when we gave her the examination, I could see that she was struggling with it. And what I did is I ended up taking her into another room and we just kind of talked about it. And it was amazing that, you know, she ended up doing really, really well on the exam because I could get out of her either from the training course or from past experience that she knew how to do it. She understood it. But, you know, sometimes I think it, it doesn't transfer. But, you know, the one thing that always bothered me is you, you never knew what you got wrong, you know. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, there's an old guy named Ed York, and, uh, you know, you may have heard of him. And, you know, he, yeah. he, he started the IICRC and DKI and many, many other things. And, you know, that was one of his big peeves as well, because, you know, if you're you know, if you get 90% on your uh, airplane flight examination and, you know, what you forgot was landings or something like that, and, and, and you really don't know where, you know, what you didn't learn, I think you could kind of be in big trouble. So I think the industry just needs to do better in, uh, you know, telling us, you know, where we need to brush up a little bit or, you know, where we may have misinterpreted it. But in any event, well, now, you know, you're with Rainbow and, you know, there are a lot of responsibilities there. And it just seems today that, you know, staffing has got to be uh, a challenge. And I'm just wondering whether or not uh, Rainbow and, and you or pass on to the, you know, to the franchisees, any strategies that have been uh, successful for attracting service personnel? Yeah. That's a great question, Cliff. Um, I think that one of the simplest things that I've watched very successful people do, and we still encourage our franchise owners to do it here at Neighborly uh, and at Rainbow. So Rainbow is one of 19 service brands in North America that Neighborly owns. So if you hear me refer to Neighborly, it's our parent company. Uh, But Don Dwyer uh, was the founder of Rainbow way back in 1981. And then that's where the Dwyer group came from. And now it's Neighborly. He had an amazing vision. But Don always taught people that you should always be recruiting. So I think that's one of the things that we need to look at is, um, you know, where do we find people? Because if we were just to say, hey, I'm going to find water technicians at, and I need to find five of them. And we only start, we go fishing in the pond where there's water technicians or carpet cleaning professionals. That's 
a more narrow pond than everybody that's in the service industry. We can teach them the skills, but it's hard to teach people to have a customer service attitude uh, and to treat people the right way and have a positive attitude. So number one is we're always telling people you should always be recruiting. If you're out to dinner and you see somebody that has a great attitude uh, and you think they'd fit in the company, then talk to them. Just you know, get their business card. Give them your business card. But one of the benefits, many benefits of being part of Neighborly is that we are one of 19 service brands. So Neighborly is the world's largest home service franchisor group. And um, so there's a lot of benefit and buying power that comes with that. So we've created the Neighborly Applicant Tracking System uh, in the past year. And so what that is, is that it's powered by artificial intelligence. And it, one of the things that we're doing now is that it, inter it interfaces with job boards such as Indeed, uh, Glassdoor, different job boards. It puts postings out there, but then the artificial intelligence allows our franchise owners uh, to maximize their time really in the interaction with applicants to get them as quickly as we can into an interview to, so that they can talk to us to see if we're a good fit and we can talk to them. Uh, that's really one of the things, Cliff, I think that we're most proud of and that's working tremendously well. What we found is, or the industry has found, this comes from, you know, Indeed, Glassdoor, everybody that's out there looking for workers in today's day and age, is that the average worker, when they get online, that's primarily where they're looking for jobs now, they might apply to four or five different companies at once. And as they are applying to those companies, whoever gets back with them the soonest is going to have opportunity to interview them. Well, what we were finding is that in the industry, on average, it was taking 11 to 12 days in the service industry for service companies to get back with these applicants. Hmm. But the people that got back with them within a day or two were usually hiring them. We've seen that. And I'll talk a little bit about that here, even at the home office on a corporate level. So by using the neighborly applicant tracking system, if you're a neighborly franchise owner, you have access to that. By using that and using artificial intelligence, we've cut our average response time at neighborly down from days. Now we're down to where our franchise owners are responding. Sometimes within 15 or 20 minutes, they have an interview scheduled because of the artificial intelligence uh, interface. But our average is down to just four or five hours. And so that's helped out tremendously as to how do you attract service personnel? Because what you're showing them right on the front end is that, hey, this is a responsive company that I want that I may want to work for that I could be interested in uh, because people get frustrated and they think that you're not interested. Uh, we live in a day and age which, you know, I remember when you guys asked how I started in the industry, I thought I was, we thought we were cool because we had pagers on our belts when we were back as water <laughs> right, in 1996. Right. I remember I'd get a page from my ex-father-in-law and I'd have to ask the homeowner to use their phone to call them back to see where to go to next if there was a water job. But now we think about it, we have, you know, we're doing this over Zoom, Microsoft Teams, text messaging, Snapchat, TikTok. I, we're in an instantaneous society. And that's really something that as we try to attract service workers, and from different generations, I'm Gen X, and we think of my children. Uh, if you don't get back with them right away, they just assume that you're not interested or that something else has happened, and they move on. And so that's something that we're really pushing is that, number one, have a company that people would want to work for. But number two, you have to respond to the service per, uh, professionals in a prompt way to show them that you're interested. Joe? Gosh, I'm wondering, um, you came from the, the trenches up. How does Rainbow currently promote upward mobility for their people? Yeah. So Joe, there's two different, uh, you know, avenues there really. We've got our franchise owners out in the field and then we have the home office. So I'm very, very familiar obviously with the home office. 
Uh, neighborly, I keep referring to Neighborly because Rainbow is a phenomenal company, but we're part of Neighborly. And what I tell people, even when I interview them to come to work at the home office, is I came here and I was the director of technical training. And so I was teaching IICRC classes uh, for our franchise owners two or three weeks out of the month, uh, whether that was here in Waco, Texas, or traveling around the United States. But when I came here, uh, somebody that's a previous uh, Marty King award winner, I know Cliff knows him very well, Pete knows him, but Jack White has really been a phenomenal mentor to me and someone that I met at Strategies for Success in uh, back in 2005. And Jack's the reason that I'm at Rainbow. And so when I came back in 2017, uh, it was because of Jack White and Dina Dwyer and the code of values that we had at uh, the Dwyer Group now neighborly. But when I came here, Jack kind of laid it out for me. He said, hey, I'm not going to be here forever. I'm the vice president of technical services. And because of the age difference, he's like, I think that you're the person that could take, you know, to do, could do this job when I retire. Thankfully, Jack still works with us. He's a phenomenal person, a great man. Uh, but Jack shared with me, and I share this with everyone, whether it was at Rainbow or whether it was one of our 18 other brands. So we think of Mr. Rooter, Molly Made, Mr. Appliance, Window Genie. I can never remember all of them. If there's not an opportunity to advance at Rainbow, there's always opportunities at Neighborly. And so that's one of the ways that we foster upward mobility is that I'm surrounded. I'm just one of 18 or I'm one of 19 presidents. There's 18 other presidents that are all, you know, more talented, better looking and smarter than me. But I get the benefit <laughs> of learning from these ladies and gentlemen every day. Um, and so it's the same thing, whether you're a franchise business coach, a technical trainer, or a director of systems at the home office, we have 19 service brands. So there's always opportunities but there's always a way for you to learn better leadership and team management skills from some pretty incredibly talented people at Neighborly. Out in the field, when we think about if someone's a service professional, um, it really depends upon where you work, uh, how big the owner wants to grow their company. But at Neighborly, Don Doyer's vision was that, you know, everyone should have the opportunity to own their own business or to be their own boss. Right. And so that's one of the things that we foster is that, hey, if you reach a ceiling, uh, working for different franchise owners. Not that we want to go steal people's workers. I just had a conversation yeah. this morning with a franchise owner that's like, hey, um, that one of their workers is interested in coming to the home office. And so we're having a conversation around what that looks like and if he's okay with it. And he doesn't want to hold this individual back. Uh, but we always talk to the owners and try to say, hey, this person wants to come work at the home office. Is that okay? But we tell people, you can always own your own business, your own franchise, or there's the opportunity to come work to home offices if there's an opening. Uh, but really helping to lay out a career path for them. One of the things that uh, we might talk about a little bit later, depending on time, but one of the challenges nowadays is just building patience into people because a lot of people have very, very big dreams. Uh, but in order to get there, it usually takes some time to get the leadership experience and just the experience of being in business and in life uh, to work at the home office or to be a business owner. You just don't get that overnight. So um, another person that works here, our COO, her name's Mary Thompson, a wonderful woman. She's an ex-Marine been in franchising forever, but Mary always says, you know, you don't want to promote people too quickly because you could set them up for failure. You know, you could ruin their career trajectory if you don't let them become a little bit uh, more ready for the next position. So that's one of the challenges I find is that we want people to advance. We want to help them grow, but we also kind of want to make sure that they understand they need to have patience because if you promote people too quickly or you put them in a position that they're not qualified to handle just because of timing, uh, there's a chance that you could wreck their career trajectory. And uh, we take that very uh, seriously here at Neighborly, that we want people to be successful and we want to make sure we put them in the best possible position to succeed. Do you think it's an innate talent that you're born um, with it? 
Yeah, I think some people at Clip are born with qualities to be leaders. I mean, if we think of a DISC personality profile, um, right. you know, there's four different personality styles. Not everybody is like a high D like I am. Uh, but I think leadership can be learned as well. One of the people I love reading his books is John Maxwell. And John Maxwell says leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. And so all of us influence other people every day. Right, right. So we can learn to be uh, to be better leaders. It comes easier for some people than others. And uh, so I think that, yes, it's there's a certain level of innate talent, but I don't think that as anybody listening to this or anyone I talk to, I don't think they should be discouraged to say, hey, I don't have that, you know, God-given ability to be a leader. Maybe they're introverted or they might not have quite the self-confidence to step out there and to give direction, but it's something that can be learned. Uh, and it's something that they can have mentors to help them with. Uh, it's just a matter of how do you get to the to the end goal that you have. You know, you mentioned disc profile. Uh, I'm a big believer in that, actually. Yep. Uh, huge. And I'll never forget one time uh, when we were franchising, I had, I had a group of people. I think there were 18 different franchisees in this room. And uh, we told each one of them to put some, to write a name down or rather than write their name, use an animal. And what was amazing is that we passed those profiles around and everyone in that room could identify every other person that was in that room just based on those profiles. Yeah. And I'll never forget one of the guys, he got kidded like crazy for it. He wrote down fluffy was on his, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, everyone knew who Fluffy was and, you know, we kidded him about it for, for many, many years, but I mean, that was, you know, I, I, that was the one profile program that, that I really, uh, have utilized myself, utilized in various companies and, uh, just think it's great. Yeah. No, I love the disc profile. It just helps understand just the, the natural tendency of, of yourself, how you show up, but also of other people and making sure that there's sometimes that we have to mirror or match whatever level of energy they're at in order to get them comfortable enough to, to work with us. Right, right, right. I was wondering if Fluffy went on to become a, a Hispanic comedian because uh, there's a very famous one out there right now. He's hilarious. If you get a chance, put him in on YouTube. Anyway, Josh, how would you describe your leadership style and how has it changed over the last, over, you know, you've been doing this now 20 some years. How has it changed? Yeah, so it's changed uh, dramatically. The interesting is Cliff said the disc profile. So I took, I, I try to keep these. I've got like a, a binder. So this is old school. Now everything's iPad now, but I have a binder with leadership things I've attended, but a lot of different personality evaluations I've been given over the past 15 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to watch on my disc profile. I took one back probably in 2003, 2004. And my, my the D was so high and the I was so low. I don't know if the, I think I was setting the outside parameters. And I recently took the same thing again. And the D has come down, not quite as dramatically as I would like it, but maybe that's a good thing for my role sometimes. But the I has come way up uh, in terms of you start to learn in life. I'm a father of two wonderful sons. Uh, you go through life, you interact with a lot of people, you get different roles. And so what I would say, uh, Joe, is that I used to think as I watched other individuals and I was young and uh, immature and ignorant that, hey, a leader is somebody that always barks out orders and they're very... Uh, uh, for lack of a better term, they're very militaristic in terms of like, it's my way or the highway. And if they don't do what they're supposed to, you you separate employment from the company or you kick them off the team when really nothing could be further from the truth. 
And so in uh, watching people, I think, uh, you know, Chuck Violin at Violin Management has been a wonderful friend over the years and watching the way that Chuck leads. He was the president of the RIA for a couple of years when I was on the board of directors. What I've learned is that, um, as I mentioned before, leadership is influence and you can influence people in a lot of different ways. And sometimes influence is letting other people use the talents they have that I don't, but just being there in the background to make sure that they know that, hey, I support you. I have your back. Uh, things go wrong. We'll get through this together. And so I think that's my leadership style now is how do you find I'm a really, really big sports person. I love uh, hockey growing up in Detroit. I'm a huge Red Wings fan and uh, college football. And so for a number of years, 25 years in a row, the Detroit Red Wings made it to the Stanley Cup playoffs. And then they won the Stanley Cup four times over 25 years. And what I watched is that Steve Eiserman was one of the greatest captains in hockey history, but he was very quiet and he just led by example. But the Red Wings were very good because what they did is they just got as much talent as they could on the team and then figured out where to put the talent. And it's just whatever role you need to be in it. So that's kind of my leadership style, the way I approach things now, uh, even before I came back to Rainbow, is how do we get extremely talented people that have a very uh, values-driven system that's similar to mine, it's similar to the code of values we have at Neighborly. How do you get them on the team? And then once you get them on the team, let's figure out where they fit best. Uh, there's times when the leader needs to lead. Um, I just read a book by uh, an ex-Navy SEAL called Lessons of the Bullfrog, and one of the chapters in there says that when you're in a leadership position, sometimes you need to lead. So there's times when I have to make decisions nobody else can make. But my leadership style really now is let's build a vision Let's set some goals. And then when I need to be the person that steps in to lead or make a decision, I'm happy to do that. But outside of that, I think it's far more gratifying and you have more success if you just find really talented people and let them do what they need to do and help them get where they want to go. Uh, it's a lot more fun to do that as a team than it is to do it alone. Let's, uh, we got to go to halftime and thank the important sponsors that we have here. Josh, we'll be back for the second half of our interview with Josh Miller in uh, about a minute. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted, full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, advancing careers of professionals in environmental health, industrial hygiene, and safety, interested in defining their science. ACGIH.org. AIHA, healthy workplaces, a healthier world. AIHA.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA's multidisciplinary membership, collects, generates, and disseminates information concerning environmental and occupational health hazards in the built environment at eia-usa.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, iicrc.org. The Restoration Industry Association the oldest and largest nonprofit professional trade association dedicated to providing leadership and promoting best practices through advocacy, standards, and professional qualifications for the restoration industry at restorationindustry.org. Industry sponsors are Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us, particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, TSI.com. 
Tramex Meters, developing modern dynamic moisture meters and humidity monitoring systems since 1974. TramexMeters.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers. HealthyIndoors.com. Okay, Cliff, let me turn it over to you to start the second half. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Joe. Um, I guess, how much notice did you have when you were, before you were promoted to president of, of, of Rainbow? And then how did you prepare for the role? Yeah, so that's, um, Cliff, that's an interesting question in the sense of, so the previous president before me, his name was Kerry Fairless, great president, uh, good mentor and a great friend. Uh, he retired at the end of 2021. So December 2021, we knew Kerry was retiring. It, that was his plan all along. He was going into a different season of life and wanted to spend more time with his wife and grandkids. So um, Mary Thompson's the COO of Neighborly. Mary started an interview search for uh, a national search for the president of Rainbow. So I went to Mary and said, I'm the vice president of operations. I think I uh, could do a good job as president and I'd like to be interviewed. And at that time in December of 2021, uh, think back to earlier in the in this episode when I said one of the things Mary's taught me is you don't want to promote people too soon because you could set them up to where, you know, they're not ready for it. And then you can't go back to a different job once you're the president. So Mary said, hey, I you know, you've got a bright future at Neighborly and at Rainbow, but I don't think you're quite ready uh, to be the president. And so the process played out that there was a number of people interviewed and then uh, that process went on for four or five months. And then um, Mary came back to me and said, you know, you're, I was working with Mary. She was the interim president. I was the vice president of operations. And she came back to me and said, I'd like to, you're doing a great job. And I think that maybe we should interview you. So that was, uh, there was an interview process there, probably eight different interviews that I went through with a number of different people. And at the end of that, in June, she said, hey, you know, you're the, after going through all this stuff, you're, you're the guy that can, that's going to lead Rainbow next. You're the right person at the right time. So I probably had a couple of weeks before it was announced. Um, the process itself took a little bit long. And as I went through the process, I tried to tell myself, hey, Mary is an extremely talented person and a wonderful executive. Like she's very, she knows what she's doing. If Mary doesn't think I'm ready, then maybe I'm not ready. But this the going through the interview process can do nothing but help my career. So all through it, I kept telling myself, hey, this probably isn't going to work out, but it's okay. I'm getting a lot of experience. And then when it finally did happen, I would say, Cliff, I had two or three weeks. Um, the way that I prepared for the role is I've mentioned it, you know, I have a huge advantage working at neighborly that other people at franchising or even independent restoration companies might not have. And then I have 18 other presidents along with Mary and the growth team, the C-suite to rely on. So a lot of times people say, Hey, the view is lonely from the top. It's not at neighborly. Uh, there are so many dynamic leaders here. And what I appreciate most about Neighborly is the is the culture that they've created and the humility that all of our leaders have that we want to help one another. So the way that I prepared uh, was really just to work with Mary on creating a vision of where Rainbow needed to go, uh, what were my strengths, and then just leaning upon the staff at Rainbow, like building a vision for what the team looked like that I wanted to build out when I hired a new VP of Ops. And then I've just asked a whole lot of questions to other presidents here at Neighborly uh, on how to be, you know, how to be a good leader of a franchise brand. Well, I think the most important thing is you had the confidence, you know, from the very beginning, uh, you felt that you were the guy and that you could do it and and, and so on and so forth. And I think, uh, you know, if you can see it in your mind and, uh, you know, I think in many situations you can do it. And I, I think that's a, that's a great story, Joe. 
Yeah, I just want to follow up on that a little, Josh. Where where do you and Rainbow see the industry going? Yeah, you know, as you guys are well aware, um, there's just a massive amount of consolidation going on within the the disaster restoration industry right now with private equity. Uh, so I don't see that stopping anytime soon. I mean, Neighborly is owned by a private equity company. KKR is our private equity partner. Uh, they're a phenomenal partner to work with in helping us to create initiatives that benefit our franchise owners. Um, but private equity doesn't invest into different businesses just to invest. There obviously has to be a return on that. And so that's one of the things. Um, I think consolidation continues. As that consolidation continues, it brings along uh, a, a maturation or a sophistication of the industry. Uh, I worry a little bit in that what does that do to the opportunities from where the disaster industry started when you think about independent carpet cleaners or people starting a disaster restoration company? Uh, it's a phenomenal industry. Number one, we get to help people at, at, in their time of need. But number two, it allows you to have um, a great sense of purpose, but also to have a nice life for yourself. So there's part of me that worries about uh, what does this look like in the future for people in the United States? The American dream is, you know, own your own house, own your own business, control your destiny. Uh, what is all of this consolidation with private equity doing to the opportunities within the restoration industry uh, for people that want to uh, control their own destiny? Uh, I think that, you know, it's six of one, half dozen another, Joe and Cliff, that it's a good thing because in, in a lot of ways, when we look at certain owners or certain business owners in our industry, they're not very strong business owners. And so they uh, create habits or they have practices that give the good business owners a bad name with insurance adjusters and insurance companies. Uh, but on the flip side of it, as I mentioned, um, are we going to price, is the industry going to become so consolidated and have so many big players? You know, there's probably 10 large independents and the seven to 10 franchise networks. Is that what the industry looks like in the future, that there's 15 to 20 big networks, whether they're independent or franchise and nobody else can get into it. I don't know if that's the best thing in the industry either. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. I do like the fact that we're trying to uh, raise the level of what's going on in the industry with both the IICRC standards and the RIA starting to try to uh, talk to more of the industry to get more people to join the RIA. Um, but the next couple of years are going to be very interesting because I think that uh, anybody who's worth buying has pretty much been bought up by now through uh, consolidation. And so what is the next phase? What's going to happen through the next phase? I've got a, a text on uh, leadership. How, can can you comment on how small companies, less than 10, let's say people, can develop leaders from such a small staff? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, I, John Maxwell said it, you know, leadership is influence. I think the big part of it is, is just to, um, where do people want to go? Number one, you know, a lot of people say, hey, I want to be a leader. Or I want to advance. When I was working as a consultant in the industry, one of the interesting thing was, and Jack helped me with this tremendously. Jack always says, hey, ask more two or three more questions than you think you need to. So as you ask questions to people about where they want to go, I think a lot of times they want to go different places than where we've assumed they want to go. I think that's one of the blind spots, at least for me, is that I make assumptions too quickly uh, working with people or meeting them. So in developing leaders, I think the first thing is find out where they want to go or what leadership looks like to them. And then the next thing would be, uh, I'm really big on this, is make sure that people understand that you believe in them. You know, give them different tasks and roles where you give them a certain level of autonomy so that they can start to make some decisions. And those decisions aren't always going to go right. You know, that's one of the big things. Um, when I was 
um, 14 to 18, my summer job was to pour concrete. And so it taught me what hard work really was. And so I don't <laughs> complain now when I'm out at 2 a.m. or when I used to be out at 2 a.m. if I was extracting water because pouring concrete was ridiculous. But my boss at the time, I'll never forget it, um, said, you know, you have to make decisions sometimes because me and another guy were 15. We didn't make a decision while he wasn't on the job site. And he said, the worst thing you can do is make no decision. He's like, even the wrong decision allows me to coach you to what the right decision is. And that has never left me. So when you're developing leaders, I think we need to make sure that they understand or that people understand, hey, you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. When you make those mistakes, let's talk about it. I think that's one of the things that uh, that Carrie did. Carrie Fairless was the previous president of Rainbow. And when he asked me to be the vice president of operations, I said, I'm a, a restoration guy. Like I'm not a franchising guy. I know restoration really well. And I'm going to make a lot of mistakes in franchising. And Carrie said, that's fine. I expect you to make mistakes. I'll coach you through them. And then he jokingly said, please just make your, sure your mistakes are on the small decisions and you get all the big ones right. Uh, <laughs> I think that's how you uh, create leaders is that you lay out a path for them, make sure that they know that you, uh, as their mentor or supervisor, believe in them, and then give them a certain amount of, uh, a certain amount of area to make mistakes. And when they make mistakes, uh, say, you know, that's our time to prove, hey, this is okay. Um, Harry said, you know, um, as you can tell, I've had a lot of mentors, but Kerry used to say, whenever you make a decision, all I want to know is what was the thought process behind the decision? And did you do what you thought was in the best interest of the franchise owner and the business? If you can answer those three questions, we can coach you through anything. But if you make a decision that you just said, well, I didn't really think about it. And this was the easiest decision for me personally. He's like, that's hard to coach. So how you develop leaders, I think, you know, talk to them, believe in them. Let them make mistakes and then you know, give them, uh, coach them or correct the mistakes. And that's really where their leadership to me is going to start to come out is when somebody makes a mistake and you still back them and tell them it's okay, man, uh, what a powerful moment that is because then they know that you've got their back and they're going to want to do even better for you. And they're going to, and they're going to, it's going to be reinforced that it's okay to make mistakes. I think too often we think that leaders never make mistakes. Um, all the people here at Neighborly that I talk to, they're in positions of leadership when they all say that. I make a lot more mistakes than I do get things right, but it's just how fast can you cycle through it and get back to what's right? Admit your mistake and move forward. Well said. Cliff? Yeah, Joe. Um, I think maybe one more question then uh, going to Roundup. What do you think? Yeah, that's fine. Because time is a... I, I, I think it's a good text question if you want to... How, how do you assess or determine an applicant's value. So if someone's, you know, applying, how do you try and figure how do you how to try to learn what type of values they have? Yeah, I think it's through questioning. Um, you know, you can ask questions like tell me about a time cliff where you had to make a decision that, you know, you were either going to upset the homeowner or you're going to upset your boss or uh, tell me about a time where you had to make a decision that involved um, you know, what you knew was right versus what was profitable for the company or like before the applicant comes in, um, make sure that you prepare, but it's really about, you know, either tell me about a time. I love those questions because it forces the applicant to share something from what they've done in the past. Um, part of the process that I went through to become president was the last round of interviews I went through was a four hour personality evaluation. Um, I never want to do that again. <laughs> um, but it was an interesting thing because what the the gentleman on the other end of the line uh, it was during uh, the tail end of COVID, so we did it remotely. And what he said to me, he went through every job that I've ever had in my career. 
And so he said, you know, tell me what you did, were hired to do. Tell me what you're most proud of. And then tell me about a time when you made a really bad decision. And then the follow-up thing was, what did you learn from those bad decisions or good decisions that won't happen again in the future? And so I think that's how you start to assess uh, an applicant's value system and where they're at. Um, at Neighborly, we have the code of values. Uh, so we call it living rich because it's respect, integrity, customer focus, and having fun in the process. All of the values fall underneath there. Um, so that's another way is just, you know, during the process, if you have a mission statement or a value statement, share that with them and say, what do you think of our value statement? And then have follow-up questions on what those values, how they look in real life. Because of course, if you say, hey, this is our code of values, everyone that wants a job is going to say, oh, I love the code of values too. And then say, well, let's talk about some situational things. How would you approach A, B, or C? But it's really just asking questions. And I like the questions. It goes back to leadership. Tell me about a time when something went wrong or went right, but what did you learn from it? That's really the biggest thing is make sure that we've learned something as we go forward. And another one, um, you guys have kind of asked me this a little bit earlier when you say, how has your leadership style changed? You might ask them a question, uh, the same thing. Hey, how have, how have your values changed or how has your worldview changed based upon things, the questions that you ask them? How did that change your value system or how are you interact with employees or supervisors? But really open-ended questions, not yes or no. We're going to help you uh, understand right. whether or not that candidate's going to be a good fit for your company. I just want to get into a little more on mentorship. You had talked about it and mentioned a couple of different people, Josh, and yep. so on and so forth. You know, what does the word mean to you? Yeah, so uh, it's funny because, you know, you guys set a rough framework when I saw that, Cliff. I've thought about that for a few days now. Um, really, a mentor to me is somebody... Um, that cares about you and wants to see you succeed in a lot of cases believes in you more than you believe in yourself or they see a future for you that you can't see for yourself. Um, they start to see that you have certain gifts or abilities or talents that they see. And a lot of times it's from their experience in life. It could even be somebody that's the same age as you, but they see something in you that you don't see in yourself. And so a mentor is somebody that's going to give you that belief and say, hey, I'm going to walk alongside of you and I'm going to help to pick you up on the days when you're not feeling as good. I'm going to challenge you on the days when you don't believe in yourself. Uh, I'm going to challenge you on the days when maybe I think you're taking a the easy way out or taking uh, you're not taking challenging things. You know, Carrie did that to me at one point in time. I had an opportunity to leave Rainbow to go work for a very successful restoration company uh, that's part of the RIA here in the States. And Carrie asked me one question and he said, are you running to an opportunity or are you running from something? And when I analyzed it, I was really running from the fact that I was not, I was insecure about my next role within Rainbows being the vice president of operations. And so that's when Carrie as a mentor said, you can do this. Uh, there's going to be hard days and there's going to be days you're uncomfortable, but I know you can do it and I'm here to help you. So Cliff, that's to me what a mentor is, is somebody that sees uh, they're going to support you. They want to see you hit your dreams, but they're also going to challenge you to do more than even maybe you yourself think you can do. Great answer, Joe. All right. Well, why don't we go to the roundup and we can talk a little RIA during the roundup with the uh, industry restoration industry's global watchdog, Pete Consigli. All right, Pete, let's see if we get you on the line here and uh, see if you want to follow up on a couple of these questions. Uh, yeah. Great. It, it, today was really a really great fireside chat. You know, two of the things that the IQ radios 
been kind of two of our hallmarks over the years, either do these little fire fireside chats, you know, with different uh, industry personalities or the roundtables we do where we have a panel of people, you know, we do a variety of different shows, but I always kind of enjoy those roundtables and the fireside chats the best. Um, so just on what you all just finished talking about uh, on the mentorship thing, I like to weigh in on that. I'll, I'll tell you where, what I learned about mentorship was back in the 90s when I started to study a lot of the Stephen Covey stuff before it became Covey Franklin. And, you know, Covey is most famous for his Seven Habits book. But the book to me that was most influential that came after that was called Principle-Centered Leadership. And then he did First Things First after that. Those were his three main books in the late 80s and early 90s. But in the Principle-Centered Leadership, he had a um, he had a, a pyramid. And he called it, it was the Leadership Pyramid. And it talked about the inner reaction that we'll have at least that this mentorship he said there's three parts to it the first part is um modeling and he said modeling is seen so you know uh josh talked a little bit about that you see somebody that uh, you know as you're coming up uh, you maybe you want to emulate them you know you just watch them and they're respected the peers etc so that's the, the bottom of the pyramid as you move up to the middle of the period that's mentoring now, a lot of people actually don't necessarily they take mentoring out of context, but the way Covey just defined it was uh, if if modeling is, is seen and mentoring is felt, in order to have mentoring, that's a relationship between two people. And Josh talked about that a, a number of times throughout the interview where you're either mentor or mentee with another person. But the top of the pyramid is teaching. It's so the highest compliment that you can one individual can pay to another and say, that person is my teacher. And teaching is heard. So stop and think about that. You see something, you feel something, then you actually hear something. And I think that probably comes from the martial arts and from the old ancient mysticism where someone takes someone under their belt and they become their teacher. You know, there's all kinds of the grasshopper and the master poe analogy and things of that nature. So um, I think, you know, teaching is very important. But in, the, in that context of the leadership pyramid, I don't think it's the traditional teacher like somebody's teacher in a school. I think it's more of the relationships that develop over life uh, in order to do, do that. And that's the next step. So anyway, uh, I think it's an important topic. I enjoyed Josh weighing in on all that. So I got one question for you, Josh. Um, you know, uh, Don Dwyer's daughter, Dina Dwyer, I'm assuming she's retired now. She kind of took over after after Don, I don't know whether it was after Don's passing or after his retirement, but I remember when she was the keynote speaker several years ago at RAA, one of the, her little messages that resonated was uh, hire, um, hire your weakness. Is that is that part of the core values of something that still exists within Rainbow, within Neighborly? Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up, Pete, because even when I became president, um, uh, Mary Thompson was the COO of the president's at the time reported to Mary, we've changed our reporting structure. But when I became president, Mary said that to me, she says, Hey, I want to be uh, part of your interview panel for your vice president of operations. She's like, because you have a very unique personality and a unique skill set from your background. And she's like, and I want you to hire the exact opposite as your vice president of operations. She's like, I don't need two Josh Millers as the president of VP of ops. And that's nothing against me. But she's like, you need somebody that's going to help you in the areas that you're not as strong. And so that's exactly what we, you know, what how it worked out. Same thing. I went through probably eight interviews. I thought I had the VP of Ops once or twice. 
And uh, my boss now, a group president, his name is Josh Sevick, was part of my panel as well. And Josh Sevick and Mary, both times I thought I had someone, were like, that's not your person. And it ended up I hired a gentleman, knew nothing about restoration. He comes from the franchising background. His name is Steve Leisure, a phenomenal person, exact opposite of me. We have the same sense of humor, but our personalities and how we approach work is the exact opposite. And he could not be a better fit for our company. Uh, because he catches me on all the areas I ca- that I need to, and I catch him on the areas he is. And it just, I think that that's one of the things at Neighborly that really helps us is go hire your op- the opposite of your personality if you're in a position of leadership, because it's only going to make you stronger. Well, that's that kind of tends to the old saying that opposites attract. So where did where did that guy, that person fall in the disc? Yeah, so uh, on the disc profile, uh, Steve is a lot more um, with a lot more S and C. You know, he's a lot more compliant and he follows things uh, very outgoing, but he's a higher eye than I am. Uh, his He does not have the same dominant trait as I do. Like my, you know, you, you how do you, when you're under stress, uh, one of the discs I took a number of years ago, my ex-wife loved to hold this against me. It said, when I'm under stress, I can appear <laughs> as a dictatorial steamroller. And that's not Steve. <laughs> <Like>, that's not Steve. <laughs> Steve is like, hey, we're going to collaborate, and I'm going to convince you to get there. I'm like, I don't have time for this anymore. You're going to do it because I said so. And so that's where he falls on the disc. Is he? He's very, very compliant, and he's very much like, let's collaborate. I'm very much, hey, we're going to break the rules and ask for forgiveness later because we're going to create something new. Yeah, so so that let, leads me into the next thing. But actually, the funny thing is, that comes from the military, early, early in your career, the militaristic background, that story that you told, you know. Yep. You don't ask any questions, just do it, you're out of here, right? <laughs> no, it's, it's not always the best way. And so no, it's is really not. a blessing for me on my staff. Yeah, it's definitely not always the best way. Actually, it's usually never the best way. <laughs> um, so I want to recall back to the first time I think that we met. Do you remember when that was? Yeah, it was in uh, October or November of 2013 out in Phoenix, Arizona at the WLS class. I had dinner with you one night in a taco restaurant. I saw you standing yeah. there, and here was like uh, the rock star Pete Consigli. And I said, "Hey, can I have can I have dinner with the instructor?" And from there, we've had a beautiful uh, friendship. But that was after the class started, right? Yep. Yeah. So let me tell the story. Cliff, get ready to take notes on this for the blog. <laughs> so that it was right. It was in October. It was at an Aramco delivery site in the Phoenix area. Uh, Two thirteen. Very interesting class. It was the WS class. We had 15 guys there from a variety of things, some pretty prominent people in our association today. And I remember at that time, you had already had your CR and you had your CMP, and you're not coming to take the WLS. And I, I remember, I think at the first break, I remember you were sitting in the back row, and you just always smiling and had this grin on your face. And I'm thinking to myself, what the heck is he smiling about? <laughs> so I remember I... I remember when I came over to you, and now remember, this is uh, when the course had, back in those days, it was a five, I think it was a five, it was a five-day course, because we used to have a couple of the outside people come in, it was, it was more than three days, as I recall, but anyway, I remember I said to you, hey, whatever, and I went over to talk to you, and you looked at me, and you go, I think I can teach this course, I'm going to teach this course, you told me, meanwhile, you you were on the first day you haven't even moved to the exam to do all the requirements on to be a WLS. And I looked at it and I thought to myself, yeah, you know, I, I think I'm going to like this guy because it, that's something I would have said about 20 years ago. <laughs> Same kind of a thing. <laughs> I don't know that I ever told Marty King that the first time with the series. Marty, I think I'm going to teach this course. But uh, that was kind of similar. So I kind of re- remember that. Um, 
Well, the, the other question I want to ask you, and I, I, when we were going over the interview questions, I had asked, I had sent Cliff a separate text in this. And I said, Cliff, here's a question I want to ask Josh during the roundup, and it wasn't in the questions. And I didn't know whether Cliff would ask it before the roundup or not. But I'm going to ask you, and don't answer too quickly on this. So anything you want to share with the audience, remember, once you, whatever you say, it'll probably be in the blog and you won't ever be able to take it back unless we have to edit it out before we upload this thing to uh, uh, to Spotify and uh, YouTube, etc. So you were the guy uh, in Orlando in 2021 at the RAA 75th Diamond Anniversary Convention that uh, I guess did the presentation when the association decided to surprise me and honor me by naming an award after me, which I knew nothing about about but a lot of people have said pete you kind of knew about that didn't you i said did, did i look like i knew about it up there i was pretty shocked and surprised and to this day i don't really know how that all happened i don't want you to violate it to say anything that probably shouldn't be said publicly but i looked around and i asked a bunch of the people on the board and they asked people who, who are the primary conspirators behind this thing to kind of surprise me like that because it was really a wonderful honor and uh Anyway, you happened to, you were the education chair at the time, so I think that's probably why you did the presentation of the education award. And uh, it's something that I'll cherish really for the rest of my life and my career. But uh, anyway, anything you can, any in, little insights you can give uh, give Pete and the Z-Man on this one? Yeah, so what what I would say, Pete, is this, is that I had the, uh, the privilege and the honor of being on the board of directors for the RIA from 2016 to uh, 2020. And towards um, the end of that tenure, which I, you know, uh, they shrunk the board from 18 members to 12. So that was a little bit of a, a surprise at how that happened. And so I resigned from the board to allow Jay Van Dusen to stay on the board because we couldn't have two or three rainbow people on a 12 member board. It looked like we're running the, the association. So Jay stayed on and I resigned. But towards right before COVID, one of the things uh, in getting to know you, I mean, you've been a phenomenal mentor and friend. Um one of the things that you're passionate about is, hey, what is what is all of our legacy within our life, but also our legacy within the RIA? And when I think of education at the RIA, I never had the honor of meeting Marty King. I got involved in RIA um, a year after Marty taught his last CR class. And so I had Ken Larson and Norris Gearhart in 2012. Um, but I've been around Ken and Norris and you, uh, Michael Pinto, uh, different people have been my instructors, but you have, are you and Ken are the most passionate people I've ever met about the RIA. And so when I was on the board, uh, Mark Springer was the president. And one of the things I said to Mark was, hey, you know, we have the Marty King Award um, for like a lifetime achievement, something like that. What can we do to honor Pete? Um, because Pete's, whether we all like it or not, uh, we're not all going to be around here forever. And so I was one of my big, huge beliefs is, is that we don't honor people later in their career or late or after they're gone, because like my ex-wife, well, especially now that she's my ex-wife, but she could care less if I ever won an award at the RIA, even if we were <laughs> still married, because this is I'm in the industry. She's not. And so I want to make sure that, you know, we honored you and what you were doing. So what I would say is that uh, it's probably Mark Springer was the one like a lot of things. Mark's a phenomenal man, a great father of five daughters and a wonderful husband. But um Mark called me one day after I'd talked to him about how do we honor Pete? How do we honor Pete? Mark called me one day and said, Hey, I think this is the way that we do it. Uh, we have a Pete Consigli scholarship thing around education, because really when we think about it, what we think about when we hear Pete's name outside of being the industry watchdog and having a ton of passion is education. So 
in no way am I ever going to take credit for this. Um, if anything, it was Mark Springer. Uh, I had the honor to present the first one or two of them to you. Now I've uh, taken a little bit of a sabbatical or a leave from being the Education Committee Chairman, being President of Rainbow, I don't have as much time. Uh, but I had the honor to give you the first couple of them. And uh, you deserve that award. I think that's really, Pete, the best description I can come up with is that, you know, just a bunch of us talking on the board level. And then Mark in his position was able to get, to move the needle to get it done so that it got done. And now moving forward, that's always going to be part of the RIA. Well, thanks, Matt, Josh. So just as I suspected, Springer was the lead conspirator. <laughs> he was the ringleader. Uh, well, you know, uh, thanks for sharing that. I uh, And I got a chance to meet your successor at the AJA meeting in St. Louis, uh, Marcy Richardson from Guarantee down there in, in uh, Louisiana. And uh, it looks like uh, she's now got the task. I was talking with her. She said there's 23 people on the education committee, and there's a lot of type A's in there, and high D's. So uh, that's quite a task to kind of corral all them. It's tougher than herding cats, I think. But I think she's going to do a terrific job. And uh, it looks like, you know, you left things in good shape to pass the baton to, to Marcy. What are your thoughts on that, where education goes now with the RAA? Yeah, no, it's um... – you know, RIA is doing some uh, some amazing things. I'll say that, you know, I became the Education Committee Chair in 2019 in Phoenix. Mark Springer was, and then Mark asked, you know, I was interested in doing it, and Mark asked me to do it. And at the time, he said, hey, this will be a two, maybe a three-year process as we go through it. Then COVID hit, had a lot of challenges there. Uh, really enjoyed doing it. Would love, you know, if that possibly ever presents itself, I'd love to do it again. But after four years, I called Christy Cohen and I said, Christy, I'm the president. Uh, of Rainbow, I really need to focus on our franchise owners and how I'm leading this organization. In addition to the fact that Mark said it would be two to three years, and it's been four years uh, that I've had this honor. And so it's time to find somebody new to do it. Like people are getting sick of the voice of Josh Miller. Uh, and so they need to hear somebody different. So uh, the board has tasked Marcy with doing it. I think she'll do a great job. Uh, I'm still on the education committee to uh, support in that transition, Marcy, however I can. And uh, there's a lot of good things happening with regards to education in the RA right now. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. Well, listen, uh, Cliff and Joe, thanks, Josh. It was a great interview. Uh, I'll turn it back to you. I mean, I, if you have maybe a couple more questions, we ran over a little, but if we go a few more minutes, I, I think it's worth it. It's been really interesting and engaging. And uh, Joe, Cliff, maybe I wanted to do more questions before we wrap things up. But uh, anyway, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you guys. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Pete. Cliff, do you want to have one more? Well, let's talk a little bit about shiny objects. You know, I, I think a lot of people in your generation get excited about shiny objects, particularly electronic shiny objects. And, you know, Joe and I have been thinking about it and talking about it. You know, we have all this new electronic stuff, estimating tools, record keeping tools, monitoring tools, communication devices. Is the purpose of these things really to do a better job or are these things being used to hold the restore more accountable? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Cliff. As I, um, you know, as I sit here and think about it, what I would say is, when I think back to where I started in 1996, I mean, an adjuster was on almost every job. It's just where the industry was at. And we were writing stuff down on paper and uh, we didn't have any of the documentation, at least in the water mitigation industry, to the level that we do today. Um, when I talk back about, you know, how do we find service professionals and neighborhoods using artificial intelligence and there's a lot of new technology, I think there's a lot of things that we should use. 
Um, when we think about like DocuSketch or Matterport, 360 degree uh, images that we can create, uh, what, are, what a wonderful technology so that people don't have to travel as much. And uh, things auto measuring, um, artificial intelligence now helping to write estimates. I think all of that is a great thing. Um, we think of CoreLogic and Encircle are two uh, companies that I have a lot of interaction with, both on a professional and a personal level. I have a lot of friends there. They're trying to do things to make the technician's life easier or more efficient. So I think that that's a great thing. Um, when we think about being held more accountable, though, I, that's one of the things where my, I kind of bristle up uh, because I do feel that way sometimes is that the insurance industry understandably so if somebody came to us and said hey write me a check for ten thousand dollars out of our personal checking account we would say well what's it for we'd want to know why the insurance industry asks the same thing um i think that we've done a bad job over the years as restoration contractors of not documenting things the way we should have or overcharging for things because we thought we could get away with it and now the pendulum swung back the other way um, I like what Mickey Lee said a number of years ago, might have even been in a WLS class, and Ken Larson says it now, is if we just speak to what the project needs to have done, like how do we restore this property to a pre-loss condition in a safe way without getting crazy? Because I think that's another thing is that we have some groups in the industry on the contractor side that are uh, trying to push things to a level where they want to test for everything under the sun uh, and let projects sit forever. Well, that's irritating to the insurance industry, which is why they push back on us. So when we think about shiny objects, um, I personally wish there was less software. I think everyone thinks that their mousetrap is the best. Uh, off the top of my head, I can think of like six or seven different job management softwares in the restoration industry. Um, that's a little bit confusing and frustrating. And then we have three or four different moisture mapping platforms and we have different 360 degree cameras. So all of that stuff is a little bit challenging, especially as the president of an international brand as to what do we pick as the best and is it going to be good in three years and how does that interact? Um, it can be weaponized against us. Um, you know, hey, if you didn't document that you took the drywall out, uh, if we don't have photos in there, we're not going to pay you for it, even though the drywall is missing. Um, but I do think that we need to avail ourselves of technology to make things in, uh, more easy, make things easier for our technicians or for us in the industry. But I also think we need to do a much, much better job of communication on the front end, this human interaction. I think that's one of the things that's missing. Uh, when I got into the industry, you'd meet an adjuster on the job. You would walk through. You'd talk about scope on the job. You had a personal relationship. Uh, that's all gone now. And so this software clip is being used to hold us more accountable, in some ways good uh, and in some ways bad. I really think we need to get back to talking about what does the job need? How do we handle that in a professional way without being uh, alarmist? I mean, I think there's some people that really our restoration alarmists in the contractor's world. And then there's some people on the adjuster side that don't want to pay for anything. Um, but how do we just figure out what's how to do what's right um, and have communication, have a personal relationship so we can move things forward? Josh, before we go, from your vantage point, what are the biggest challenges facing your industry? And um, if if you have any solutions, let's go ahead and hear them. Yeah, I don't know, Joe, that I have the solutions. As I said, I, I'm really good at hiring people smarter than me and building <laughs> camaraderie to get where I need to go. So I'm not always the smartest guy in the room. Um, the biggest challenges in the industry, I think, are the fragmentation of the restoration industry. That's, you know, we see consolidation across companies uh, and the RIA is doing a phenomenal job. You know, we think of their tagline, educate, advocate and elevate. Um, but how long is that going to take to get there? Is the RIA 
you know, are do restorers at certain levels feel welcome within the RIA? Is the RIA doing enough to change what I think is somewhat of a misperception that it's an old boys network? I mean, I got in in 2012 and just started talking to people, was humbly asked where I could volunteer and was more than welcomed in, have friends like Pete and Cliff and Ken. But there's a number of people that don't feel that way because they don't attend events. So we have to figure out how do we reach these people that won't attend events? That's probably the biggest challenge in the industry is um, the fragmentation. Uh, I, I shouldn't say that's the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is just the uh, adversarial relationship with the insurance companies. That's mm -hmm. number one. Uh, number two is building a career path. You know, we get people as I was an instructor and even in my role now at Rainbow, what you find is that you have people, whenever you talk, when I taught classes, I would ask how long have you been in the industry? And you'd find that there's people that, hey, I've been in six months, three years, or they've been in 10 or more years. It's like you have lifers and you have people that have just gotten in the industry. And nowadays, uh, how do we build a career path? And I think that's one of the areas that the RAA really has an opportunity to work with the uh, other organization like the IICRC to build a career path for people from uh, how do you start out as a service professional and work your way up to a business owner or uh, operations manager, general manager, president of Rainbow? Show them that there's a career path there because right now uh, I think that there's a big divide. And that goes back to working with insurance companies. Are we viewed as a trade? And then that leads to the third challenge, uh, as I mentioned, Joe, is the fragmentation. I mean, we think we have RAA, IICRC. Uh, there seems to be on Facebook or LinkedIn new groups that pop up and then disappear every couple of years. Uh, how do we just all start to work together as one trade or one association um, and have some tough conversations? And I think that would be my solution is uh, how do we have those tough conversations with regards to all unifying under one banner of a trade association? Because these other groups pop up because they feel like there's no place for them um, within the RAA primarily. The other thing is, is this is just a personal uh, feeling, but it's very easy to create a group on LinkedIn or Facebook uh, and not put any money behind it. So I think that's another thing is that sometimes people are always going to want to have a group and say that let's go change the world. Uh, but you have to invest your time and money to do so. So I think there's a certain level of these groups that will always show up just because it's easy to create a group and not put anything there. Uh, the RIA has done a great job of welcoming people in and getting the AGA and a number of these enterprise members of which, you know, Rainbow is one of them and a number of other companies are to start donating to the RIA to get some more momentum going than what we saw 10 years ago. What's that AGA, let that acronym stand for again? Yeah, it's the Advocacy and Government Affairs Committee at the RIA. And so really, we think back, uh, I think you won the Golden Quilla for award, but Mark Springer wrote, you know, that article about our greatest need. And one of those was, is that, hey, we need to have an advocate, or we need to be able to advocate for our industry in a unified manner. Um, by no means is it perfect. Uh, Pete just mentioned we were at an AGA event a couple of weeks ago in St. Louis. Uh, so it's slowly but surely building momentum. And uh, hopefully it continues to go in the positive direction that it is. We'll be doing more shows on that as the year goes on. Before we go, we always like to give our guests the last word. Anything you'd like to add? Anything we missed? No, thank you guys for having me. Um, you know, I would the last word I would say is that, you know, whatever your dreams are in whatever industry, or in this case, the restoration industry, uh, just believe in your dreams, but become, uh, find a mentor and start to attend events, RAA events, IICRC events, and just get to know people. That's more than anything else in my career, uh, attending RAA events and just asking people, you know, becoming their friend and humbly asking for help and asking questions has helped me out. Um, I don't know that I'll ever be able to pay it forward or to pay people back that have helped me, but 
when I hear people say like, hey, the RIA is an old boys network, or I don't know how to go develop my career. The easiest way to do it is just to attend an event, get to know people, and then humbly ask where you can volunteer. And, bef and before you know it, you'll be right inside on the inner circle of whatever organization you're a part of, and your career will take off. All right. My thanks to this week's guest, Josh Miller. Thanks again. Much appreciated. Uh, always great to chat with you. My co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. The, the Restoration Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. Most importantly, our loyal audience and sponsors. By the way, next week, we've got Bill Bonfleth on. We're going to talk about that new ASHRAE infectious aerosol standard and some other current events. So come back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. <laughs>